Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Welcome to part two of our discussion of Tolkien and creativity. Okay, so let's move on to on fairy stories. Um, for me, I mean, again, this is just a wonderful read. Uh, so many nuggets in this. I've, I've got in my edition, there's like sidebars of pencil all over the place. Um, but one thing in particular I find really helpful is the answer to the question is what I'm writing original so that's really tricky somebody does sort of doubts their own creativity the anxiety of influence is another you know am I just writing too much like somebody else um there's a a C.S. Lewis quote about this which is helpful um if if um he says man but if a person um, doesn't give tuppence about being original, but just wants to write truth. Nine times out of ten, they'll find they are being original. So you can just forget about that entirely and just try and tell the truth as you see it, and you'll end up being original. But I think in this, on fairy stories, in terms of our creativity, what Tolkien is saying, absolutely you're going to be using things that other people have used before because it's all gone into the cauldron of story. And he has this sort of long-extended metaphor about the um cauldron about all the things that have gone into it uh he's sort of mentioning all the things he loves that has gone into it all the myths and legends and fairy stories of the past um and then he goes on to say but if we speak of a cauldron we must not wholly forget the cooks there are many things in the cauldron but the cooks do not dip in the ladle quite blindly their selection is important. So that's your role. You've got available to you dragons and werewolves and vampires and ghosts and princesses, you know, the whole thing. Um, And it's how you dip in your ladle. I think here what he's pointing at is the role of the intentionality. And it did make me think because I've been sort of worrying at this recently because of all the um, the anxiety at the moment about chatbot GPT and all these other AI-generated material, that you could say that they're doing a very similar thing. There's a massive cauldron out there of everything that's ever been written that this algorithm is skimming away at and producing passable material. But what is lacking there is the cook. 
there's a cook behind the AI program, but there is no intention on the part of the algorithm. It's obeying an instruction from you, but it's it's blind to what it's putting together. It doesn't feel anything about it. It can't. It's a, well, not yet. Anyway, not until we're in the world of Star Trek and data. At the moment, as far as we're aware, they don't feel anything about this material. So I think one answer to what's right and what's wrong about um, AI doing this sort of selection is don't forget the cook. So the cook has to, even if the cook is using the equivalent of a microwave to heat up a meal by plugging something into the algorithm, there still has to be a cook doing more than just blindly following something that comes back out. You know, don't just scoop out this stuff with a massive ladle and slop it onto the uh, the world, literary world, um, because that is happening at the moment. There was um, a science fiction publisher who has said it's closed uh, it's closed its list to new entries because it was being swamped by AI-generated work. Um, and, of course, the front runner on this will be a science fiction publisher because people who write science fiction will be more techie and using these things, but it's going to be elsewhere too. It'll be going to romance and, you know, literary fiction and elsewhere. So we have to re rethink the role of the cook in all this, I think, to make if we're going to have literature going forward. I can't imagine anything more anti-Tolkien than um, chatbot GPT. Can you? <laughs> I, he, he would be just, I don't know, dropping his pipe. I think he would say, yeah. So he would say, well, because he's already, he's already suspicious of technology and things yeah. that are used just to further. <laughs> so like, so he would say, yeah, that, that that's essentially, that's Melkorian magic, right? It's just like <laughs> yes. enslaving words an that <laughs> other people have created testing them and then using them for your honor that, that I, I feel like that's what Tolkien would say that would be his hot take <laughs> yeah so um what else did you draw out of the on fairy stories uh in the sense of creativity yeah in terms of yeah so personal creativity for authors um artists um individuals uh i think for me, there's a couple different things one of them was um kind of again this capacity that we saw in in uh mythopoeia we're essentially right where we we make um in the law by which we're made right you're referring to uh, t.s Eliot, right um that each individual has something innate in them that allows them to create right the humanity one of our shared uh capacities is for creation that's what sets us apart from other animals uh, and trees um uh, and like you were saying that or from uh ai uh <laughs> chatbots is that that we are doing something with language and so like the, the ability so so that, that's one thing that so each person by by virtue of the fact that we use language and that we can be aware about the language that we use we can use it intentionally uh and so he so i love this how he, how he equates language with magic um, and mm. so I just want to read a little bit of here, uh, and this is again from, from fairy stories it says the human mind endowed with the powers of generalization and abstraction sees not only green grass discriminating it from other things, um, but sees that it is green as well as being grass. So you can separate 
not just like green grass as like a single a single word a single object but this is grass and it is green so he said but how powerful how stimulating to the very faculty that produced it the invention of the adjective no spell or incantation in fairy is more potent so he's saying the adjectives by qualifying nouns right so i'm not saying grass but green grass that's something that is powerful our ability to qualify give quality to a particular object so um he, he goes on to say the mind that thought of light heavy gray yellow still swift and those are thoughts that we've all had <laughs> have daily right um also conceived of magic that would make heavy things light and be able to fly turn gray lead into yellow gold still into a uh, into a swift water uh when we can take green from grass blue from heaven and red from blood we have all the an enchanter's power um so that each person essentially and i love the way that that kind of reframes uh just our our, our conversations like what we're having right now uh this is kind of a <laughs> and it's not like a magical duel like that's an argument and our argument <laughs> any argument can be seen as a duel of magic because you're using words and you're using them for certain purposes and you can use words to make people hurt you can use words to make people laugh. You can use words to make people feel joy and think. Um, and it's the words themselves, how you're shaping them, not just using those sounds or just saying words, but your intention as the creator to do that. You can do it and fashion things. Uh, and so he says, using those adjectives, so just the fact, like just that I think is remarkable and was revolutionary for me is like, yes, like just the fact that I can qualify a noun, <laughs> I can say that it is green grass. Uh, that I can then say, oh, well, what about bluegrass? And Tolkien uses this idea here, like the green sun, right? Um, positing and creating a world in which these things can be other than what we're experiencing right now. He says, we may put a deadly green upon a man's face and produce a horror. We may make the rare and terrible blue moon to shine, or we may cause woods to spring with silver leaves and rams to wear fleeces of gold and put hot fire in the belly of the cold worm such in but in such fantasy as it is called new form is made fairy begins man becomes sub creator so this is going back to that term sub creator that we saw uh in uh in uh, mythopoeia um and so he he kind of essentially says this aspect of mythology or sub creation rather than either representation or symbolic interpretation of the beauties and terrors of the world is i think too little considered so where you have mythology what he sees again he's dressing people that are talking about um andrew lang and the mode of understanding myth is uh, to this school and what he's addressing is people who are looking at the idea of creation of mythology that how this has happened historically are uh humanities longing for putting order and making sense of the world so this is essentially these are just kind of uh allegories uh if you will for how the world works so thor is actually just thunder and lightning mm -hmm. that's the and they're just creating they're just because they're too simple to, to people are too simple to understand it in terms of like barometric pressure and uh right precipitation and these sorts of things and how you know liquids can become solid and uh and evaporate and that right so so they're kind of the a, a more simplistic in this way of saying more simplistic mode of engaging the world is just understanding what's already there um in kind of symbolic or visceral terms but what tolkien is saying here is what another type of mythology is taking the language and Re remixing it right rearranging it intentionally to create 
something wholly new to create uh, a, a green sun, to create uh, dwarves, to create beings um, so that they then become something wholly new that doesn't actually exist in our world, but then becomes part of this, what he calls a secondary world, yeah. uh, which is what you're creating. So uh, yeah, so that's, that's something I don't know that for, for, from on fairy stories, Julia, for you, where he's talking about sub-creation and the creation of fantasy, what did you take away as like a fantasy author uh, for like well, the implications for you? Uh, so many things, but um, I think one of the things is don't patronize our ancestors. Mm. So don't think, oh, they Thor is only, going back to your example, Thor is only an explanation for thunder. Um, it's not. Uh, Thor is a character. Uh, he's grown into his own world. He's much more than just a pseudo-scientific explanation, well, an explanation of just-so story, I suppose. It's not a just-so story. Um, and another thing I, I took away and I think this is why so many of us love Tolkien, is that sense of intensity, that when you look at the way fantasy captures and describes the tree, the hill, the home, the hearth, there is something extra, that silver-breathed idea of Lewis, but with retaining the magic. Um, and that's that goes runs all the way through this uh, this essay, is that sense of how you're entering a special atmosphere and why we want to go there and go home. And he has a um, a phrase about this, actually, which is a sort of defence of um, escapism. Um, why should a man be scorned if finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? Or if then, when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls? So there's a sense of there is a kind of home that you can find within fantasy. And that's not, it has meaning. It's not just a, a lie it, in answering to the, the C.S. Lewis um, problem that he raised back when he was writing with the peer. But let's do a little nice little segue to um, Tree and Leaf, which is at one point in this essay, he says, who can design a new leaf? The pattern from bud to unfolding and the colours from spring to autumn were all discovered by men long ago, but that is not true. He goes on, he's basically saying there's yet more places that you can develop a leaf. And that's Niggle's problem. He's trying to paint, he wants to paint a whole landscape, but he's got stuck <laughs> doing a leaf because he's trying to get it right. He, clearly there is a um, a bit of, self-satire here because Tolkien did niggle away at his world in a delightful sense <clears throat> and um, the neighbour who pulls Tolkien away possibly the neighbour who's cutting down the tree you know uh, going back to that issue um, Mr Parish stands for parish duties I suppose it, it could mean the calls on your life by, you know, admin at the university and having to fix the car and wash the windows, you know, that stuff. Um, well, he liked doing the garden, but feed the chickens, whatever it was that he found more of an onerous task. Um, Mr. Parrish is, he, I think Tolkien's aware that he 
that that person that thing is necessary in his life because what happens in the story is poor old niggles trying to do this leaf he doesn't get very far and then when he goes on his journey which is a sort of metaphor for death uh and he gets to the other side mr parish is there and together putting their mr parish's knowledge with niggles artistry they're able to create something even more beautiful um so it's a wonderful um it is pretty much an i don't know am i allowed to say it's an allegory because tolkien hated <laughs> allegories it feels very allegorical to me if you think about it does feel more within the kind of pilgrim's progress mm. uh sort of structure so i don't know am i am i com committing some kind no, of i think i don't think I, here? yeah I, I think no i, I think yeah i, I think you'd uh, i would like to think Tolkien would be okay with us thinking about this as allegory because this is again this is like a different mode this is him mm -hmm. kind of reflecting upon his own creative life and its impact right uh so I I, I do not think he would be or is turning in his grave at this sort yeah. of conversation because we're think, taking it seriously and putting it in the context of his life yeah and we're free to apply it to other things so that word applicability he was he was happier with so with this he does actually there is the pressure in um, Niggle's life that what he's doing isn't worth anything. Why are you spending all this time just working on one leaf? And then finding that that leaf is actually a thing that creates a whole new world after death. And I'm reminded of the sort of um, the last battle, um, different versions of Narnia. There's a sense that you enter in new worlds and it becomes more real and there's more to discover. So, both Lewis and Tolkien have a sort of concept of the next, what happens after death as being creative and re more real. And I think both of them are drawing on the, the sense of that fairy, fairy tales are capturing something more visceral, more profound. So maybe that's something that we see after now we see in a, through a glass darkly, then we shall see face to face uh, is, you know, obviously the biblical way of, of phrasing that. So I think it's quite a optimistic work about the value of art. Um, yeah, I, I see it. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's a really good way for Tolkien to reconcile himself to the fact he's never going to finish his project to mm -hmm. write the Silmarillion. And maybe in a sense he doesn't want to. Um, because, you know, you'd never say, oh, yes, I finished writing the history of my world because that would close it down and make it hermetically sealed and maybe it would die whereas this by having it branching off um and continuing get, keeps it alive yeah yeah no I, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it but and like in you know his personal letters and you you kind of alluded to this earlier that he saw what he was doing with the creation of middle earth as something that that what he said the, the, you know, the language he uses that other you know hands and minds would be able to work with and that they could work out other you know corners of this canvas that they could you know in uh in opera right in in art and the, the, it would inspire people so it's an open system like you're saying instead of a closed system and i think that's that that idea of openness uh to creation uh <laughs> like you said that maybe 
he never actually really wanted to finish the Silmarillion. I don't know. Because I was psychoanalyzing talking. Because right, he, <laughs> he keeps tinkering. He keeps yeah. niggling with it to his dying day, right? He's mm. he's still like playing with these different ideas. And um, and so here, yeah, in this story, you see that <laughs> beautifully illustrated by somebody who just like keeps going and he's like, I can't possibly do this. And then he realizes that he's going to die. And so he knows that it's coming. He's like, well... I can focus on one thing. Well, maybe, maybe I'll, and he's, he's rushing to figure like, I'm going to just do this leaf or this tree. And then it just kind of keeps growing and expanding. But for, for me, yeah, this, this, this leaf by niggle um, speaks to a few different things. Like I said, like this optimistic view of the creative act and our creative legacy as well. So it's the, the, the creative atmosphere, right? The um, kind of context in which we create is inseparable from the community in which we live. And so with the, the leaf, uh, when, so he's painting the, the, the re- recap of the story, you know, he's, he's painting this leaf and this tree uh, and that's kind of his life work. And he's always thinking about it. And he's annoyed at his neighbor for asking him to help fix his house and help with his wife who's sick and everything else is an inconvenience and he'll curse at them in his mind or under his breath, but never to their faces. <laughs> and he's always, and he, but he's always willing to do nice things, but it's kind of grudgingly. Um, but he just like wants to get back to this work and then he dies. And then ultimately he sees this work represented in some other place. He's it's, it's been made real. And when he looks at this tree that he's been painting and kind of imagining and trying to work out, uh, he sees that the tree has all these leaves and they're familiar. He knows that it's the tree that he was painting, but as it really is, or as he really wanted it to be in his mind. Uh, but as he looks at each of the leaves, they each have a little date on them for when, which part was created. And he said, you know, that the leaves that were, that he thought the very best leaves were also done in conjunction with perish this annoying neighbor <laughs> so your your creative output you can't divorce yourself you can't just and shouldn't just isolate yourself you know kind of monastically um or even 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 monasteries they were still that was still in the context of community you can't just be like an anchorite like out in the desert and just like be completely segregated because the best art that we do is when we are engaging with others as people in the world and taking them seriously. And this speaks to that, right? So the, the best parts of his creation were done <laughs> with some sort of input influence as grudging as that was with, from his, his annoying next door neighbor. And so it, it kind of opens us up, I believe, as, as creatives to the idea of welcoming in interruptions, right? Welcoming... <laughs> Uh, what's annoying taking life seriously and like you said with with c.s lewis you know if you end up writing truth like the truth of your life and your experience your genuine engagement with humanity that's going to be a that's going to be far more original and interesting than anything that you're kind of trying to do yourself for your own purposes again that kind of melkorian i'm doing this for my own world because i want to create this and i want to be seen as this creator of this world um one of the things that it one of these voices uh that is talking about uh nickel 
and they're trying to say like, do we let him out of essentially purgatory yeah. um, into the next stage? Um, there's two voices arguing. One saying like, no, he was he was he wasn't kind to his neighbors. Uh, he was he, he and he didn't even paint that well. Like, why why should we let him go? He needs to kind of keep working this out. But then this other voice, kind of the voice of mercy, uh, says, um, well. Uh, he was a painter by nature in many ways. He's still, uh, in many ways, still a leaf by niggle has a charm of its own. Um, he took a great deal. He niggle took a great deal of pains with leaves just for their own sake, but he never thought that made him important. So again, there's that attitude and intention. It's not writing for the sake of becoming a famous painter, a famous author. This is concerning yourself with the creative work for its own purpose. And because it's inherently good and you're bringing something beautiful in the world, not just for you to look at like Feanor or your family to look at and peek at and, and shield from others. But this is really the act of creation is an act of a gift to the world or should be uh, in its in its highest and best sense. And so because it went when art is done in that mode, then it becomes something that enriches others and can inspire them to do the same or do other things in their lives. And so really what we see at the end of the story that's really inspiring is, you know, Nigel didn't think that he drew well, right? And he draws and the little, what was left behind when he died ended up getting burned uh, ultimately. There, uh, a little bit was, was, was recovered, put in a museum, but then like that museum burned and later so nobody knew it. But the idea of it and when people did interact with it, as small as it was and as meager as it was, um, what these kind of voices say at the end uh, of the story is that this leaf in this other world, you know, as, as he lived on. So like the legacy of um, of this story that he was creating or this this leaf, this painting that he was doing just for its own sake to make something beautiful Um he said, uh, one of the voices says, it is proving very useful indeed as a holiday, as a refreshment, or as in fairy stories, you'd say as an escape, right? Um, it is splendid for convalescence. And not only for that, for many, it is the best introduction to the mountains. And so in this story, the mountains is kind of like higher truth, higher reality. So this this little leaf that he was, wasn't doing even that well, <laughs> that because it was a genuine, generous, creative act, it's serving as kind of a conduit for people to see something bigger that lies behind it um, and kind of inspires people to move on to bigger, better and brighter things in their world. Um, and it, this voice says it works wonders in some cases, and I'm sending more and more there. So more people are being referred to <laughs> their friends are referring each other to this work because it's doing something for them. And we do see. And again, this is before contextually in Tolkien's life, this is before he's created, before he's published Lord of the Rings. So this is, I think, in a sense, prophetic, like unintentionally yes. prophetic. So this is kind of optimistic. It's funny, isn't it? That, yeah. But this I actually, because so, this happens, this, this is what actually happens yeah. with Lord of the Rings, right? That everybody recommends it to each other and you, we, you're inspired by it. You reread it. And for some, like this is, it touches a nerve uh, in mm. people um, that, that makes them they want to to live inside this world this makes them aware of it, it doesn't it doesn't shy away from sorrow sadness pain heartache um and tragedy but there's something in it that that inspires it can give you the strength to go on and to do good in whatever way that is in whatever small hobbitish way that is that you can bring something and do something good to help the world move uh in in, in a better brighter direction and you're part of it 
I must oh, bear this. Beautiful. I must bear these lessons in mind when I'm writing. I've actually just this week handed in a ninety thousand word novel um, to my publisher for Ooh. editing. And when you're doing that, you at the end there is an element of you go through a whole kind of life cycle when you're writing a novel, mm. um, and part of it is the business side of it. You know, the sort of outward focus. How does this work in the market? All that kind of thing. Um, but the bit that you really want to protect and to value is the leaf by niggle bit, which is the, how can I make this a distinct world? Um, something which is my sub creation. Um, and it's, it's keeping hold of those whilst also doing it as a profession that is, is, <laughs> it can be, can be quite a challenge. Um, anyway, so thank you. I think we've, We've covered that quite a lot of ground there, but there is always more to say. I'm sure we'll dip back into this in many different directions over the over the course of our conversations. But I thought I would wrap this up by asking you the usual question about where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place to be something. And in honour of um, the idea we all get to play jazz in and have riffs of our own, what about jazz? Where do you think is the best place to be a jazz player in all the fantasy worlds? Where would you like to wander on with your saxophone or your you know, <laughs> drums? I, I, I know I've already used this answer uh, for the previous one. We're talking about uh, you know, a, a professor. Um, okay, so you're going back there again. Place, you? Going yeah. back, yeah. So Temerant, the world of the name of the wind with Patrick Rothfuss. So it had some of the most... Yeah, gorgeous descriptions of music. And in that world, again, right? So like language is power. Uh, and knowing the names, the true names of things, much like in uh, Ursula Le Guin's um, uh, works with Earthsea, words have power. Uh, and one of these characters, you know, is because they're concerned about words and the beauty of sounds um, and stories. They're essentially a bard and, and sing. And then it's, it's this beautiful description um, that can like stop the breaths of an entire <laughs> stadium, you know, an auditorium uh, where, where the, the description it has of, right, this main character there and how everybody is kind of hanging on every yeah. note, every word of that song. He's kind of, he really is casting a spell on them. Uh, and that just, yeah, the, that that part. The in, lute in, playing. In yes. Yes. Yeah. That, that just and like, actually, it does have that freestyling thing because he, he, he in one scene, he's playing, hoping that some, a female voice is going to join him. He doesn't know if it is going to happen or not. Right. But there's a sense of, if this is going to work, it sends a jeopardy. It's <laughs> right. Work if someone else joins me, but not if right. they don't. Um, right, right. Yeah. So for me, I think um, I'd like to extend the Star Wars world. I know they've extended <laughs> it in many, many ways um, <laughs> okay. through all their Mandalorians okay. and what have you. But obviously, we all know about the Cantina Band. Mm -hmm. Why is nobody making the Star Wars extension about that Cantina Band? <laughs> about that band. <laughs> I think that would be hilarious. It'd make a wonderful cartoon. <laughs> yes. I want to be in the Cantina Band because um, they don't seem to get hurt. They seem to survive, which is good. But you yeah. could imagine them you know, getting a gig at the bat there and perhaps getting a bit of fame and then going off to another location. And you can have a whole sort of subset story mm -hmm. about um, their, their troubadour life, seeing sort of side views of the main Star Wars action. Right. That's, that's where that's I That's a great go. idea. I love that. <laughs> and what about um, a top fantasy tip? Have you got something you'd like to share with us? 
I do. And I can finally talk about it now because it is officially right. on shelves and available uh, for purchase uh, on Amazon uh, and other places. But it is, for those of you who are saying, I have here uh, the Lord of the Rings adventure book game produced by Ravensburger. This is where a company that I work for. Um, and so, yeah, so this is a great game. It's based off of uh, the films and not the book specifically. So it's taking, drawing kind of um, narrative beats from uh, the film. Uh, specifically so there's unfortunately you will not find tom bombadil uh, yeah. in here um, so, uh, very uh, kindly you, you sent me an advanced copy of this when i started playing it with my family and what i really like about it is uh, i hate really competitive games like monopoly where you can spend hours feeling really miserable because you've got you know only the old kent road to your name um in this you are working cooperatively and you have to be aware of what everybody else has got in order to achieve the story and because my children no longer live at home but come back from time to time, we can go back into this game and say, right, we're on to the next chapter. Let's have a go of that. It doesn't take hours and hours like diplomacy or something. Um, <laughs> right, so, yes. so we've thoroughly enjoyed what we've um, played so far, and um, and it's very pleasingly got like a nice book that you sort of work your way through. My top tip this week is um, not Star Wars, it's Star Trek, that – Star Trek Picard has come back. Um, and I thought the last season was a bit weak. I didn't really like it that much. Uh, it was okay. But I really am enjoying this third and final se series. There's the pleasure for people who followed Star Trek of seeing old faces coming back. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a few creaky bones out there um, in terms of they're all much older, obviously. But there's a... I think it seems to be quite an interesting story and it's building quite nicely. So I am looking forward to the weekly episodes. Um, so if you're a, a Trekkie who's not been following the Picard, you might enjoy this. So you can actually join it in the last season. You don't need to have watched the previous ones to understand what's happening. Um, yeah, so they are still being creative out there in the world of Star Trek. And I wait for the call from the Star Wars studio for me to pitch my <laughs> cantina band side story. <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? 
and I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.